Hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting across North America on Saga 960 AM and also on the Big Talker Network down in North Carolina. I'm one half of your host, Yael Osaski, broadcasting from the home studio, and I'm joined by my colleague, David Clement, who's under the Emergencies Act. Oh boy. <laughs> David, how yeah, is it? Yeah, it's going all right. It is going all right. It has been quite a week uh in canadian politics lots to uh, lots to discuss and not and not even not even canadian politics by the way i think what's happening in canada is being watched the world over uh so there's a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of stuff coming in a lot of commentary um people that are uh, buzzing about social media so yeah how, what's it like living under an emergency <laughs> Well, it doesn't impact me at all um, in any way, or at least not yet. Um, You've had to park your truck in the backyard instead of the no, front? No, I mean, it is It is strange, though. So basically, so the thing that re- I really don't understand is the invoke, like invoking the Emergencies Act because of a failure to enforce laws that are already on the books and this is what really makes me scratch my head is that it has already been determined that various aspects of what is happening um, are illegal finable arrestable offenses in some senses and so it's a question of enforcement and I'm I just don't understand how invoking the act other than really taking things to the next level, um, but not enforcing the actual laws that are on the book, how this r- helps anything? And I mean, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association has said that they do not believe a high and clear threshold needed to invoke the act has been met, noting that the law states it can only be used when a situation cannot be dealt with using any other law in the country. And I mean, based on that very, very basic reading, it would suggest that we are not in a situation worthy of, of the Emergencies Act. Um, and so I really don't understand what they're doing here. And then there's all sorts of weird talking points. So the New York Times published a piece basically saying that this could threaten civil liberties and Liberal Twittersphere has responded saying, well, no, it won't threaten any civil liberties. But, I mean, I'm sure we'll get into the specifics of that. But, I mean, there are some pretty clear warrantless activities that may go on now, um, which uh, are your suspension of civil liberties because the government will be acting and punishing without a warrant or without cause. Um, And that should be problematic for anyone who cares about law and order um so yeah yeah i agree um, uh, so i do have mm-hmm. some clips here to give some context to listeners who might not be totally mm-hmm. in the know uh, so we'll go to uh the minister of finance and deputy prime minister uh christia freeland uh here she spells it out what it's all about this is about following the money This is about stopping the financing of these illegal blockades. We are today serving notice. If your truck is being used in these 
illegal blockades, your corporate accounts will be frozen. The insurance on your vehicle will be suspended. Send your semi-trailers home. The Canadian economy needs them to be doing legitimate work, not to be illegally making us all poorer. Hmm. So, David, uh, you're a, a free trader. Um, what I would probably have to outline is that I don't know how much much of the funding that has been raised uh, through various fundraising platforms, how much of that has gone to the border protesters. And I'm generally unaware as to who is doing that and who these groups are. I know most, most, of, the, most of the focus has been on Ottawa and what's specifically happening there, uh, but I think she's pointing more towards what's happening at the border. As far as I understood, these things are mostly broken up. There might be a few still existing. Uh, yeah, there are some wrong. people still sticking around. The borders, to my knowledge, have been mostly cleared, um, which is good. Um, I don't think that it was appropriate to stop commerce. Um and and we certainly wouldn't tolerate that from any other type of protest, uh, and we shouldn't. But what I don't know, or what I don't like in the minister's announcement there, is it insinuates that they are going to take punitive action without charges. All right, I even okay. have a more specific clip yeah. where she says that. As of today, a bank or other financial service provider will be able to immediately freeze or suspend an account without a court order. In doing so, they will be protected against civil liability for actions taken in good faith. Federal government institutions will have a new broad authority to share relevant information with banks and other financial service providers to ensure that we can all work together to put a stop to the funding of these illegal blockades. <sighs> yeah, there we go. Baby shark horn when I, when I hear that. Uh, so, yeah, there it was very explicit. The bank can seize your assets uh, and you have absolutely no remedy if um, they did it in, quote, good faith. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. This just feels like a very gross. I mean, if what is happening is illegal, just arrest people. Like, if they're committing a crime. Exactly. The solution is to enforce the law. And just arrest the people who are engaging in criminal activity. All of these extraordinary measures largely stem from the fact that they can't just get people to arrest them. And it's like, well, what on earth? I mean, imagine you had some crime spree, and rather than trying to, I mean, we know who these people are, we get to see them. It's like rather than arrest the person who is committing breaking and entering and theft in a community and just like ransacking homes. We know who it is. Rather than arrest them, we're going to like freeze their business account without charges or seize money without charges or engage in civil asset forfeiture without charges. And it's like, guys, just arrest the people who are 
committing crimes. Like if that's where we're at, and we have reached, and as the uh, as the president of uh, El Salvador said in his tweet, are these the people who like to give lessons to other countries about democracy Ooh. and freedom? This is one of the top ranking countries in the democracy index. Your credibility on these topics is now worth <laughs> zero. <laughs> I mean, yeah, this is really problematic. Oh and, my! Uh, it's it's it, what frustrates me the most is. On both sides. So during the Black Lives Matter protests, we had a lot of people being like, well, look at the economic cost of of, of the riots. And I mean, we, you and I talked about that at length. All terrible stuff. Looting targets and looting stores and, and burning buildings and all of that stuff. All terrible. I mean, these blockades, especially at the border, come with a significantly higher price tag. And so on the left, you had people who cheered on lawlessness for a different cause who now want to send in the troops and all of these extraordinary measures and then on the flip side you have conservatives who are very quick to say just send in the rcmp if it's an indigenous blockade of of let's say something in regards to natural resources who are now kind of tiptoeing around this subject and it's like everyone is a hypocrite now and the government is only getting more intrusive and bigger and that is that should concern regardless of what your politics are um, as you always say, the pendulum swings both ways. Just imagine if this was, if Stephen Harper had done something like this in response to a protest, whether legal. Oh, he'd be, he'd be called oh, a fascist yeah, of course, state. I mean, of course. Um, and yeah, I, I just don't understand. I just don't understand how this isn't raising more alarm bells across the country and going, wait a second. I mean, the last time something was invoked like this was the October crisis. And we're talking like kidnappings, mail bombs, the murder of of government officials. Like, that was a serious terrorist incident. Um, this yeah. is not. Um, it, is, it, it is illegal. It is incredibly inconvenient. It is costly. It's probably counterproductive. Um, you can think all of those things about what is going on either in Ottawa or at the borders. And yet it's pretty clear that it is not the October crisis. And yet there seems to be this perception that it is. Here's a great headline from the New York Times. Baffled by the chaos in Canada, so are Canadians. The protests seem to challenge the cherished image that Canadians are moderate, rule-following, and just plain nice. But was that really a myth all along? <laughs> Oh man, there is so much that's happening here. I, you know, I think the uh, Emergencies Act, all of this stuff, it, it's just incredible to see. I think there is always a constituency for doing more, right? There's always people who are clamoring for the government to do X and Y and to do more, and they're all happy when their guys in charge, obviously. But like you said, if if Harper was there or any conservative, um, yeah, would would be ringing the the fascist handbells. Uh, there'd be way more memes of uh, you know Hitler mustaches yeah, it's and wild. the rest. Uh, it's there's a wild. few out yeah, there. I don't know. But... It's, and how this will play out electorally, I don't know. There's just so much gray area right now where it's like, I mean, even if you don't want to capitulate to the protesters. Certainly, you can see how this is probably going to inflame the situation. Um, in the same way that when 
Trump rolled in, I think it was the National Guard or whoever it was in D.C. to move protesters so he could take that funny photo in front of the church and that weird stuff that went on. That did not make the situation better. (laughs) It made it worse. Um, Not at all. As it does, as it does. Yeah, and I I think what I'm very hopeful you know, particularly when it comes to the cryptocurrencies and uh, all of the fundraising that was done, I think provides a very interesting template for how these things will work mm-hmm. uh, going forward. Hopefully the rules that are attached to this Emergencies Act do not stick. Um, they are supposed to expire within 30 days, but um, so was the uh, yeah, two weeks I mean... to, uh, you know... Slow the curve. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it will be the same, and I hope that it's not. But at the same time, like, can anyone really have any faith in anything being temporary anymore? I don't think so. Um, nope. Yeah. Well, you can count on Consumer Choice Radio. You know, we're always yes. here over there on ConsumerChoiceRadio.com. And you can listen on a modern podcast app after the fact, after it broadcasts on the radio and uh, you can send your streaming Satoshi mm-hmm. payments if uh, you are interested in that. Uh, David, we got some couple other things to get to for the rest of the program. Uh, we have our colleague Maria uh, wrote a, a very good article mm-hmm. in Pennsylvania mm-hmm. on PFAS, which I know we've discussed in weeks past. Uh, it was a, a big coup for her. I actually got her set up as well with a, on a radio oh, interview. Uh, not talking PFAS, but talking all things uh, Russia, mm-hmm. Ukraine. So easy yeah. topic. And, 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 and that's what makes it, this whole protesting in Ottawa even more like, while this is happening, like, are we on the verge of World War Three? <laughs> yeah. Um, lots to talk about in the next segment. Yeah, and it's pretty, it's pretty yeah. unclear there. Yeah, it's pretty unclear for that. I would hope that uh, all this can kind of... Go by mm-hmm. the wayside, um, but unfortunately, we are living in a perilous moment. And uh, man, I think we had to do a full episode at some point on this whole misinformation versus disinformation. Yeah, I mean, I have some because I'm I seeing have some a good lot stuff of to chime in on that. Seeing a lot yeah, of weird stuff. Yeah, I got some stuff. good stuff to add on that. All right, good. So we'll let's add, let's add a little bit here uh, coming up in the break. You're listening to Consumer Choice Radio. We'll be right back after this. back on Consumer Choice Radio. Yael, lots to talk about here. We've uh, we've touched on um, on the the protests that are going on. You mentioned misinformation um, prior to the break, and I think there's a really good um, there's some really good stuff coming. Uh, we've talked about him before. Maddie Iglesias has tweeted about the misinformation debate and it looks like it looks like based on some of the research that's been done um, that most of people's exposure to misinformation um, or disinformation however you frame that um, isn't 
what we think in regards to cause and effect. It isn't someone being exposed to something organically uh, or via paid promotion or anything like that and having their opinion changed. It's mostly people who already have an opinion who then seek to have it validated um, by an external source. And the reason why I bring this up is because it's a that cause and effect pattern really blunts the government's argument for regulation because it probably won't do anything to aid it. Um, like Facebook's fact checker, and I mean, imagine like a a, a government approved fact checker or something like that. People are not persuaded by misinformation. They seek it out to validate a pre-existing opinion that is wrong that they already have. Um, and so that's a really important distinction on the regulatory side beyond the arguments about free speech and open information. And things yeah, like I think that. definitely. And there's a lot that's you know been coming out in the last couple of days uh, specifically related to all of the inquiries that happened after the Trump administration in the U.S. and related to the whole Russiagate. And, uh, you know, there's an entire commission basically pointing out that there was a lot of disinformation that was spread by people connected to the Hillary Clinton campaign. Uh, there's, I mean, no, nobody's looking good <laughs> at the end of this. But it really... If, if we had to go back and, and look at all of the headlines and stories and a lot of the very bogus things that we were told, I, I don't understand, and I make this point often on this program, you know, I think we're both fairly well caught up on news. I think we, we do plow our head in there, and there's many times where I think I can, I speak for myself at least, I'm pretty confused. I don't really know what's going on. It's It's hard to understand where the truth is. I can only imagine what it's like for an everyday Joe who's just opened up in his, his newspaper and will get one or two articles and then go online. I mean, it takes a lot of work and effort to be skeptical, to be well-read, to be caught up. And whatever people say about misinformation, I mean, much of the time this is coming from your normal mainstream media news sources. You shouldn't be surprised. We're government. Yeah, or government. I mean, the masks. Perfect example. For how long did the Canadian government and our senior health officials say, don't buy masks, they do not work? Yeah, that's a pertinent They example. told us the noble lie, right? And it's like, okay, so if if the people at the top are guilty of misinformation, or you could argue disinformation because it was in very in some sense, a noble lie, right, to try and get people to not buy the medical masks for so that they could be used by healthcare professionals. And it's like, well, that is pretty egregious. Is there a penalty for it? Mm -hmm. Are these people like, what now? Okay, so are we punishing people? Is this a criminal offense? Um, and then how much of it just boils down to being wrong in the moment? Um I mean, some of like, I, I think of this in regards to some of my own comments um, on, on vaccines, because the, the nature of preventing transmission in regards to the COVID vaccines has shifted over time. Things that I have said in regards to the, to the percentages under previous waves and other strains were true, and they are somewhat less true um, now. 
And so, like, how are we judging all of this? I, it, it, I'm very hard pressed to look at everything that has happened and and think that now is the perfect time to get the government involved in regards to what you can read or what you oh, can yeah. hear. Uh, I mean, the the Trump thing I was mentioning. <coughs> this is the uh, Durham Commission. Uh, this is part of the Judicial Department mm-hmm. and the special counsel there. And again, this is not really being well covered, um, but he's put forth a court filing. Uh, stating that the Hillary Clinton campaign paid for a tech company to actually hack the servers at the uh, Trump Tower. Uh, and the, apparently the mm-hmm. tech executive who's mentioned in this, they don't uh, you know say his name, uh, but actually went very far in getting that information and then spinning it as if there was some kind of Russia connection when they were not. Uh, fairly large scandal, but you know, if people have been paying attention to the news the past, I don't know, what, four or five years, uh, they have one opinion. <laughs> I don't think this is going to, you know, change their opinion at all. But, I, you know, I think it's tough. And I know we talked a few shows ago uh, all the way back uh, with Rick Henderson, who started doing his own substacking. Mm-hmm. And we talked a little bit about sort of the st- substack economy or the substack journalism model. And we saw it as well with the trucker protest, because if you, you know, just watched the normal news or read the normal papers, you had one opinion, uh, but there were a couple of substacks that actually had journalists who went there and spoke to people and provided sort of a different image. And framing is incredibly important. And if there is misinformation in the framing of a particular topic, particularly if it's basically benefiting a government, usually doesn't end up good for your civil liberties as we're seeing on display now and definitely doesn't make you ready to make you know important decisions for you and your family in the future unfortunately yeah yeah no it's certainly and i mean there are just so many examples where it's like hmm it's probably best if we let some of the crazy stuff go because the best disinfectant for all of some of that toxicness is sunlight, is to expose bad ideas to sunlight so that they can be challenged and ridiculed. And sometimes those bad ideas end up being true. Sometimes they're wildly false and they remain that way forever. Um, but that whole process, from a creativity standpoint, from an actually seeking the truth standpoint, is all positive. Yeah, very, in my view. very, very true. Um, I think the pandemic is played into that and there's a lot of stuff that's still being debated and you know what's funny is i mentioned some weeks ago that we have this vaccine mandate now in austria and we we did just get our first letters Mm -hmm. uh, outlining what is required of us as residents and while that is happening countries around europe are removing their covid restrictions uh different american states different canadian provinces i mean everyone has their own reason for doing so but it's like uh, all right, we're we're kind of heading on this path right now because of, you know, whatever this emergency was. And uh, now other places are going the complete opposite. And I, I yeah. really feel for people who tend to be more anxious and, you know, concerned by a lot of bad news because it really comes down to the news cycle, just how negative it is. I think that's, not, that's well, a point Elon Musk makes a lot. And too. how... Well, and how many, um, how many, uh, if we, this is the thing, is if we're looking at 
who, like how many people, sorry, it took me a while to get this out. How many people both on the anti-COVID restriction and the pro-COVID restriction side have essentially turned this into like an identity where their whole identity online is built up on this one subject and their their one set of opinions. And <clears throat> throughout the whole time, they're just replicating what they've done over and over again. And so like the people who early on said COVID wasn't real, we shouldn't have any restrictions. In my opinion, they were dead wrong. That was a, those were some bad ideas. The flip side is the people who have always said we need more restrictions and are still doing it today, they're wrong now. Um, and there's just so many people. I mean, this is maybe just a Twitter thing where you get consumed from this, but it's also in the media where you just see people who develop this identity and then it becomes their, like, we need more restrictions to every measure. And I think my worry here is that we've maybe normalized some of the extraordinary measures here. And once COVID is behind us, we'll start to see some really insane proposals from people to try and deal with other problems. And it's like, well, I mean, the government could lock down the economy for two years to deal with COVID. Why can't we do this crazy thing to deal with this problem? It's like, oh, I, I hope agree. we don't. Yeah, I hope we don't. So, David, last get there. year we focused a lot, just to change uh, gears a little bit. Last year we changed, we, we yeah, focused a little bit on the Super Bowl commercials. Uh, did you happen to watch that this year? I did not at all. I don't know if that's worth mentioning. Oh, no. No. No, I didn't really watch many of them. The only, actually, the only really good one I saw, I think it was a Ford F-150 electric vehicle truck commercial, and it brought in the kids from The Sopranos. Um, it was particularly good because the music, the theme song came on. Oh, boy. And uh, it was, that was pretty good. rights for that? <laughs> Yeah, it's a very yeah, good The only question. take I, I saw from anything, and again, I don't really need to watch it because I understand what the reaction is. Like, oh, this is the, the commercials and the whole Super Bowl show is just made for millennials. So it's just nostalgia from the late 90s. Is that accurate from, from what you can tell? I didn't yeah. watch any of it. Uh, well, I mean, the whole... The whole... Uh, the whole... Um, halftime show was basically like grade eight nine and ten for me <laughs> it was it was fantastic was Limp Biscuit I there it. i guess not right um no i mean limb biscuit would have been would have been a nice addition um but yeah for, i mean for it was i mean there was a really good tweet and it was like all the millennials are collectively going oh finally it's not some old fogey band finally they have something for us young people, oh no, we're the old fogies. <laughs> we're now. the ones. Yeah, we're uh, we are the target demo, yep. though. This is uh, this is important for marketing uh, purposes. You know, we are the target demo. We're the ones spending money. Uh, we're the ones paying attention to those ads. Yeah. You know, we're the ones that might buy these uh, Ford electric trucks. Whatever else is on there, you know. I, th I think it was crypto and uh, uh -huh. EVs is, is what I, I kind of uh, got the understanding of is the big ads. Yes, yeah, yeah. You're right. We are the ones buying stuff now, except for houses. Oh. We're not buying those. 
<laughs> That's a good point right there. Uh, so yeah, you didn't have the realtors. Yeah. You didn't have the realtors on there talking about buying homes. I'm pretty sure if you went back in the Super Bowl archive yeah. of ads, though, they probably had some kind of home buying thing, or I, I don't know. The bank. Oh, I'm sure. If you went back your mortgage far. today. <laughs> Try to even get on the list <laughs> nowadays, buddy. Yeah. Try saving up with 17% increases year over year. And Good I think luck, you kid. pointed even to the inflation numbers, uh, which are pretty much uh, the same in uh, in the Western countries now, it's hovering around 5 to 7%. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is, uh, this is not a good thing and not a good time for, uh, for people who've been saving money, uh, people who are about to retire. I mean, there's all kinds of, uh, mm-hmm. you know, bad things that are heading our way. Well, I will say that I'm seeing more politically apathetic or non, like people who are not in the nitty gritty like we are every day come to the general consensus that like, okay, maybe it was a bad idea the U.S. numbers, it's like to dump $2 trillion into the economy when it probably needed $400 billion. Um, like the general idea that like deficits and increasing the supply of money adds to inflation is growing among people who are just ordinary people who more or less are worried about paying their bills and going to work. Um, that's something that you and I talk about at length because we're nerds. Um, but I'm seeing more and more ordinary people be like, "Well, why are we keep? Why do we keep doing this?" And it's making it the problem worse. It is indeed, worse. and uh, we're getting up off the couch, and uh, we got plenty more to come here on Consumer Choice Radio. David's lining up a nice interview for us. Uh, we'll catch you in the next segment. Welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting here on The Big Talker, 106.7 FM, and on Saga, 960 AM in the Peel region, Ontario. We have, uh, you know, we've had many debates and conversations on this program. We've talked a lot about some forward-looking legislation, trying to really understand and get the lay of the land as to what's happening. And we are very lucky and honored to have on our program today, U.S. Representative Nancy Mace of South Carolina's 1st Congressional District. She has introduced an amazing bill, uh, one that we have been very supportive of, uh, that deals with cannabis decriminalization and trying to change the scheduling up there in D.C. So, Congresswoman Mace, thanks so much for coming on the program. And thank you for having me. So there's a lot of things that have come out about the bill. There's been analysis on the left and the right. Uh, Before we get into that, Mm -hmm. though, we'd love to hear a bit more about your story. Obviously, uh, mm-hmm. South Carolinians, North Carolinians who, who might be listening might be more familiar with some of your work in the state. Uh, but let us know a bit of your story, because we've read things about you in Politico. We've seen <laughs> you know, some of the headlines. <laughs> uh, you seem like someone coming out of the gate who's a maverick. But uh, give us the real spiel. Right. I think the headline last one I read was something like the curious case of, of Nancy Mace, quite frankly. But I represent South Carolina's first congressional district, which is uh, the southern coast of South Carolina, from just north of Charleston all the way down to Hilton Head and mostly coast with a, a few towns inland as well. And I grew up in South Carolina. I was actually born um, at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, because my dad was in the Army for 28 years and retired a one-star general and uh, retired to Charleston where I grew up. And I actually, I'm a high school dropout. I dropped out of school 
when I was 17 and uh, would eventually get my high school diploma equivalent by taking some college classes when I wasn't waiting tables at a Waffle House on the side of the interstate. That was one of my my first jobs uh, out of school when I dropped out because my parents said, if you're going to stop going to school, then you've got to start going to work. And, And that was my job. And I learned some really tough lessons during some very tough times in my life. And I most importantly learned about the value of hard work um, in this country. And I also learned about, you know, the American dream. If you have a dream and you set some goals, you work hard, you can achieve it. And uh, in 1996, the Citadel, the Military College of South Carolina would allow women in. And uh, I went and graduated in three years at the top of my class and turned my life completely around from that experience. So I guess you could say um, I learned to fight <laughs> while I was there, right? Uh, fight for things that I believe in, uh, learning about having confidence to believe in yourself. And if you believe in yourself, then others will believe in you. I think that's true in business. That's in politics. That's when you're raising your kids. And uh, I'm a single mom of two kids. So that's applicable there as well. And it's important, you know, that kind of confidence when you're uh, legislating up here in Congress, most importantly as well. But also, you know, I learned at the Citadel about having courage and courage to speak up for yourself, speak up for others, and even courage uh, when it's important that we don't always toe the line, right? If we're, uh, if there's something that's important to us and our values that we should speak out against having the courage to do that, regardless of the repercussions. And, uh, I think those are important values that have are some of the reasons why I'm here in Congress today and seeing, um, a little bit of success in my first year. And, and speaking of not always towing the line, um, you have introduced the state's reform act, mm-hmm. which would move, to decriminalize cannabis. Um, there's a lot to parse out in it. It's certainly a very consumer-friendly approach to cannabis decriminalization mm-hmm. slash legalization. But why is now the time uh, for, for Congress to make a step like this? Well, it's important. This is not a, this really isn't a partisan issue. And in my home state of South Carolina, I know that it's a 70-30 issue and, and uh, 70-30 on medical cannabis, at least in South Carolina today, we allow and permit CBD. And this particular bill wouldn't change what states are already doing. And it's been about 25 years since states have started ignoring the Schedule One status of cannabis and implementing their own reform. So in South Carolina, we allow CBD, (laughs) excuse me, in Florida, they have medical cannabis in places like California and Colorado, they have um, full adult use. use. And so when you look around the country and you see there are 47 states that have cannabis reforms, all but three have nothing. It's Idaho, Kansas, and um, Nebraska that have no cannabis reforms. They don't even have CBD. Um, But when you look at the patchwork that's happening around the country, and then you realize the federal government doesn't have a plan, they don't have a framework, we're not taxing it or regulating it. And if you want it done in a responsible way, then Republicans have to lead on this issue and have to have a seat, not only a seat at the table, but we have to have a voice. And this particular piece of legislation takes into account what how, what and how each state is different, and it wouldn't afford, it wouldn't enforce, wouldn't force cannabis uh, on every state unless they wanted it to. But if they do have it in any way, shape, or form, then there's a three percent excise tax, and the funds from that go to ensure that uh, we keep our kids safe, ensure that we have funding for states that have opioid pep- pandemics and epidemics in their states, ensures that um, we have good community policing programs, uh, ensures that vets have mental health funding, and so. Um, it's a really solid bill that looks at uh, looks at the measures that have been either filed by Democrats or Republicans or that have been discussed or presented as potential bills, uh, including Senator Schumer, who has, who has not yet filed his 
bill this year. Um, this is an issue that many Republicans and Democrats ran on. And I sort of look at myself, like, why aren't we doing this? This isn't hard. <laughs> if you regulate it, regulate it like alcohol, um, then it conforms in a way that that uh, that is approved by every state today. It's literally turnkey right now um, based on what's already happening in all but three states in this country. And um, you know, CNBC called it passable. Fox Business last night said it's one of the, it's the best bill that's been filed on cannabis. There's something for everyone, whether you are Republican or Democrat. If you are pro-cannabis or even anti-cannabis, if you're pro-cannabis, this taxes and regulates it and allows it to be legal in your state where it already is. If you're against cannabis, you know, this doesn't force a one-size-fits-all cannabis across all 50 states. So um, I try to make it palatable for everyone, regardless of your political affiliation or where you live, that it respects the rights of states and federalism, which is a very conservative-minded uh, viewpoint. But also, um, it has measures in there that would be palatable to Democrats as well. It's a really solid, thought-through, thoughtful piece. You're listening to Consumer Choice Radio. We're speaking with Congresswoman Nancy mm-hmm. Mace, who has just introduced uh, the State's Reform Act uh, that would look to really reshape uh, what cannabis law would be in our country. And Representative Mace, one point that you kind of mentioned there with uh, Senator Schumer is that there have been a lot of proposals on the Democratic side that have been discussed and talked about, mm-hmm. and they've had power now uh, for a good little while. We haven't seen anything, uh, but I know that there are many tenets of this legislation that actually hit against many Democratic proposals uh, particularly, we're talking about taxation. Uh, we're talking about the agency mm-hmm. that I would actually regulate. What were some of the problems with what you've heard about some of the Democratic proposals when it comes to cannabis at the federal well, level? Tax, tax is being, for first off, the tax is being way too high. Schumer's bill is a 10 to 25 percent tax threshold in the first few years, which really is it's untenable. Uh, you look at markets like California that have full adult use, recreational use cannabis. They have they have a black market, which all that does is fund the drug cartels, right? And continues, uh, you know, the problem we have at our southern border as well. But when taxes are high, um, people will go to the black market because they just can't afford what is in the legal market. And so we have to keep taxes very low in order to ensure that that illicit markets do not pop up around the country. That is one of the biggest distinctions of this bill. And then the second distinction, I would say, is the way that it would be regulated, uh, very much like alcohol, where, you know, you might have barley and wheat, you know, regulated under USDA for the growing. The same thing would happen with this. Products would be like alcohol regulated under ATF and then the interstate commerce piece of it under TTB, and then I'm going to call it FDA light. Um, there's not a lot of jurisdiction over with FDA except for medical uses, and states can determine medical uses, but the bill um, protects uh, the rights of states to have medical mar- medical cannabis um, and allows some oversight by FDA um, under the medical portion of it, both on labeling and then um, for those that will use it for medical purposes in those states. And so it's a really, I think, thoughtful and I spent nine months on this bill to make sure that I got it right. And I wanted to make sure that it was a serious piece of legislation that was comprehensive, but also clean and simple, that it just provides this framework for the federal government to get out of the way of what's already happening today across the country in all but three states. Yeah, I think, um, so from my perspective, um, I've written about 
cannabis legalization in Canada quite extensively. And when I read the bill, immediately I thought, whoa, they've, this would avoid many of the hiccups that happened in Canada in regards to it being overtaxed, mm-hmm. the pharma-grade regulations that hindered production, which right. also feeds the black market, because if it's not accessible in the early stages, well, then where do people go? They go where they've always gone. Um, so I, I certainly commend you for that. Who else has joined forces with you um, to push to have this bill passed? Yeah, another thing I want to add, too, that I forgot to mention, too, there are provisions in here that would prohibit uh, the legal age would be 21, and there would be a financial incentive to ensure states uh, conform to the legal age of 21, except for when it's medically prescribed. Um, There's also some criminal justice elements to it as well. But um, in terms of the folks that have supported this bill, we have folks on the left and right side of the aisle. We have everyone from Americans for Prosperity, the Cannabis Reform Alliance, Global Alliance for Cannabis, Commerce, um, USCC. We also have Concerned Veterans of America, the Law Enforcement Action Network, um, you know, folks as well. Um, we've got folks both in law enforcement and veterans. And then we have in the original co-sponsor list yesterday, there are five Republican co-sponsors. I'm angling to get a handful more this week. And then we're already talking to different Democrat offices um, in the House and in the Senate who have read this bill and were impressed by it and would like to work on it with us. And so um, in order to do cannabis, this kind of legislation, whether what starts in the House or the Senate, we've got to have some bipartisanship. And so I'm working now to add to the growing list of Republicans that are supporting the bill, and then we'll work toward getting Democrats on board. And we're in talks with many offices and uh, to get there, and I'm really excited about it. But I want to do the legwork first and prove to everyone that this is this thing has legs. Republicans will support it, and then um, you know work on work with Democrats on the other side to to try to get this thing done or move the ball forward. Because um, with the lack of, of any other bills right now that aren't bipartisan, we're not going to move forward on this issue. And uh, clearly, Americans across the country want change. They've been changing their state laws for 25 years and continue to and because a vast majority of the voters in this country want this kind of change. And so this genie is not going back in the bottle. And all we're doing at the federal level is we, are, we aren't taxing it, we aren't regulating it, and we're not doing it in any way in a responsible manner. Um, and this changes all of that. Yeah, speaking of change, it's 2021 and talking about uh, reforming mm-hmm. cannabis on talk radio. So I love that. But uh, Representative... Oh, yeah, I was going to say, too. Yeah, I was going to say one more thing. Normal has endorsed the bill, too. That was the the left side. So, um, you know, I have everyone on... I have folks on the Republican and Democrat side in terms of um, cannabis groups and those kinds of things that are supporting the legislation as well. So, Representative Mace, apart from uh, being young yourself, it is your first term in Congress, a freshman, fresh mm-hmm. woman, as they would say. Uh, what are some of the other priorities that you have uh, to represent uh, your constituents in the 1st Congressional District of, of South Carolina? I know there's a lot of issues out there, a lot of key votes, yeah. uh, but what are some of the other topics that you're definitely focusing on uh, for your voters back home? Well, certainly inflation, jobs, and the economy is really top of mind to everybody. I mean, steak is up 25%. Every time I go to the grocery store, and we're, we're all paying more for, for basic food and even gas when we go to refuel Um, Those issues are really important, ensuring that spending doesn't continue to be out of control and that we keep taxes down. And that's really hard when Republicans are in the minority. Um, The border is a big issue in the Carolinas as well. Every time I do a town hall, we have many questions about what's going on at the border. 
Um, and then aside from that, as a freshman Republican, I have um, I sit on the Transportation Committee, I sit on the Veterans Affairs Committee and Oversight, and I'm actually the, the ranking Republican on a subcommittee in Oversight about civil rights. And this so far this year, I've passed three bills out of the House as a Republican in the minority and as a freshman, one on civil rights issues, one on due process, and then one on a Gold Star Family Scholarship Funding Mechanism out of the Veterans Affairs Committee, and then another on cybersecurity. And, um, you know, although I'm conservative, I have a habit of reaching across the aisle to get things done because I was hired to do a job and I'm here to work. And I work incredibly hard each and every day to deliver on the promises I made when I was running. And uh, the States Reform Act, this cannabis bill is a promise that I made on the campaign trail as well as are all the issues that I'm working on from, from civil rights to, um, to spending and, and taxation and uh, the fiscal policy that will get us out of this mess. All of those things are very important to voters in my district, my state, my, in our country. So um, I'm working my tail off and I'm loving every minute of it. Well, Congressman Mace, thank you uh, very much for coming on the program. I hope that we can have you back on the show during your victory lap once this bill is passed. <laughs> and uh, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me today.